Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying what we will eat or what will we drink or what we will wear. For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring words of his own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. So you could make a good argument that the best basketball player of all time, if not one of the best players, is a fellow named Bill Russell who played in the late 50s and throughout the 60s. Bill Russell was the NBA's most famous, most valuable player five times. He made the all-star team 12 times and won the NBA championship with the Boston Celtics 11 times. No other North American athlete has won more championships than Bill Russell. And yet Bill was famous not only for his wins, but also for a kind of anxiety he would experience regularly before a big game. He would worry so much before a basketball game that he would throw up repeatedly and regularly. In fact, his practice of vomiting before a big game became so common that the coach for the Celtics at the time, Red Oerbach, would not let the team go out onto the floor until Russell had vomited. <laughs> they called it their good luck charm. The singer Adele has sold more than 120 million albums and was named Artist of the Year by Billboard for three separate years. Her recent tours have broken attendance records, and yet Adele famously wrestles with anxiety before a show. She still throws up, she says, before nearly every concert. She is especially worried that if people come to the show, the whole illusion that's been created, she says, by the recorded music may be broken, and they'll see she's human and has flaws. At one show in Amsterdam, she says she was so nervous she escaped out the fire exit and was known to projectile vomit on people. She was so anxious. Now, this is one of the most successful vocal performers of all time. 
And if Adele wrestles with anxiety about the future, if Bill Russell wrestled with anxiety about the future, Lord have mercy on the rest of us. Even with extraordinary success behind them, top performers can still worry intensely about what lies ahead. And if they can, if they can, Lord only knows that those of us who've not sold 120 million albums or won 11 championships can worry about the future and wrestle with anxiety. Anxiety, a great deal has been written about anxiety in the last 75 years. In the late 40s, W.H. Auden wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning poem entitled The Age of Anxiety. And for the years that followed World War II, that title for the decades that followed stuck, the age of anxiety. In the wake of the Holocaust and the atom bomb and the threat of totalitarianism and the so-called death of God as a unifying principle and the stress placed on individual success, anxiety became the catchword for North American society's conditions. When the first version of the standard text on mental disorders came out in 1952, it called anxiety the chief characteristic of all neuroses, anxiety. That same year, the theologian Paul Tillich noted that today it has become almost a truism to call our time an age of anxiety. Now think about this. This is the 1950s on. If that was the age of anxiety, think about how much more we have to be worried about today. There's the ecological crisis. A continent we've seen has been burning. There's the threat of nuclear war, a risk that's been heightened as countries like North Korea and Iran work to develop nuclear capabilities. And then this morning, on many of our minds and hearts, is the danger, the real worry about pandemics. The outbreak of the coronavirus in the city of Wuhan, China, has killed more than 50 people and infected more than 1,400 others. And there's now a confirmed case of the virus in Orange County. And then there are the impeachment hearings, with Democrats arguing we are in danger of moving into a dictatorship, and the Republicans arguing we are at risk of losing the legitimacy of our elections. There is profound anxiety about our political system and its future. And for those committed to the church of Jesus Christ, there is deep anxiety about the church's future, about the rise of the nuns, that is, of those who claim no religious affiliation. There is worry about the broader secularization of American culture mirroring a trend in many European countries. Man! Are there a lot of things to be worried about as you and I come to church today? If we called the middle and late 20th century the age of anxiety, I might call the 21st century and especially 2020 thus far the age of hyper-anxiety, hyper-anxiety, anxiety on steroids. So what do you do? What do you do when there are real reasons to worry? How do you not get overwhelmed by it all? How do you not give in to despair or escapism or cynicism or denial or drugs or alcohol? 
How do you engage in faithful coping strategies, long-term solutions to the real problems the world faces as followers of Jesus Christ? We want to be engaged in the world. We want to be engaged to be protagonists in a journey of positive change, to be a a part of communicating and living out the reign of God. How do you do that when the problems seem overwhelming, mountains, too high to climb. How do you do it when there are so many things to worry about? How do you maintain your sanity and your heart and your faith in this age of hyper-anxiety? Well, as Christians, we come this Sunday and every Sunday to Scripture and look to find in it hope and guidance and, most of all, the Word of God a sense that the living Word, Jesus Christ, is speaking to us, calling to us at work in our world and our lives today. And we find in Scripture, lo and behold, Jesus speaks to anxiety. He gave His followers words to live by in dealing with it, words to savor, especially in this age of hyper-anxiety. Merimnao is the Greek verb in today's passage that's translated in your pew Bibles as worry, but in other translations, merimnao is frequently rendered be anxious, be anxious. In Luke's gospel, this verb merimnao is used in reference to Martha. You might remember that when Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha, Martha ended up being very concerned about things being taken care of, about household tasks. Mary, meanwhile, sits with Jesus and listens to His teaching, Martha finally explodes with frustration that Mary has left her, Martha, to do all the work. And when she challenges Jesus to challenge Mary, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, why are you worried? Why are you showing merimnao about so many things? Why are you letting yourself be distracted by anxiety for the future? Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. Mary had discovered the gift in that moment of Jesus, His teaching, His life right there. It's not that Jesus is speaking against household tasks and the importance of doing them faithfully, but He didn't want worry about that to mean she would miss on what that moment provided. In today's passage from Matthew, Jesus lists other things in addition to household chores about which people can be unduly anxious, anxious in a way that's not helpful, that doesn't bring about the positive change in the world that we seek. People can worry too much, he notes, about what they will eat or what they will drink or what they will wear. Now, let's be clear, some concern for what you eat or drink or wear is appropriate, Evolutionary psychologists will argue that the reason human beings have survived, that one of our adaptive qualities is that the very people long ago who were concerned about food and water and about what they would wear survived the winters. Those who didn't might not have. There is a certain amount of worry about the future that's hardwired into us and appropriate. If For example, you don't have food or water, you will die. If you don't have clothes, you may die of exposure or you may be arrested for indecent exposure. Paying absolutely no mind to food or drink or clothing would be a problem. And yet, 
there is a care, an undue care for such things that can be more than we can bear. Our system is built to have some worry about these things, and there's much in our Scripture that even recommends planning for the future. Tommy, in his sermon two weeks ago, noted the value of thinking generations ahead and being concerned, concerned about generations ahead in what we do today. Last Tuesday, some from our church participated in the homeless count, and our hope in participating in that event was to foster some anxiety in our community, in our nation, about the problem of homelessness, about people who don't have enough food and drink and clothing. Some anxiety is appropriate, but there's a kind of anxiety that is helpful, and there's a kind of anxiety that can be debilitating and distracting, demoralizing and dehumanizing, disorienting and despair-producing. There is an anxiety that is entirely appropriate, an anxiety that can throw you off course or direct you down where you don't want to go. Ignatius of Loyola, writing back in the 16th century, distinguished between what he called moderate anxiety with which we attend to our obligations and anxiety which afflicts the soul. And I think that's a helpful framework to understand Jesus' words in today's passage. Jesus is not speaking of moderate anxiety with which we simply attend to our obligations. Let me tell you one of my anxieties for which I am grateful. I have a dream every once in a while, not all the time, but every once in a while, that I have slept through church. (laughs) I wake up and it's 11 a.m. and I think, oh my Lord, what have I done? And then I wake up, and I am fine. Now, this hasn't especially disturbed my sleep. It doesn't keep me up late at night, but I do have it from time to time, and frankly, I'm grateful for it because I want to be a little anxious that I get to church on time so that I don't inadvertently someday actually oversleep. There's a kind of anxiety that's helpful, that helps us prepare for what is ahead that we can receive as a good thing. You'll recall that Jesus even talked about the ten virgins and five virgins who had brought extra oil and five who had not, a parable and challenge to think ahead for the future. He told a parable about uh, one man who built a house on sand, another who built it on rock. There is value in preparing for the future, and Jesus' listeners had reason to be anxious about whether they would have enough food or water or clothes. Many, we believe, were subsistence farmers, poor and vulnerable to a bad crop year or to having the little they did have taken away by Roman taxes. But Ignatius of Loyola also speaks about an anxiety that is more than what is appropriate, about undue anxiety. There are some translations of the word marinao that translated undue care or undue anxiety or undue worry. In counseling his disciples not to worry, Jesus is speaking of worry that weighs you down with an undue burden that you just can't hold. Friends, you can't hold the weight of the whole world. You can't hold all the problems of the world on your shoulders or in your hands. You will collapse. The weight is just too great. 
undo anxiety, anxiety of the soul. That's what Jesus warns His disciples about in today's passage, and to help them get away from it, He offers something to focus on instead. It's not especially helpful to say just, don't worry, don't be anxious. Jesus offers a reason not to worry, not to be anxious. He reorients their focus. He says, look, look what you have. You have life. Isn't that amazing? You didn't create it. It was just given to you. The breath in your lungs, think of what an extraordinary gift that represents. And it has come to you. It's a gift we're so prone to ignore or take for granted. Life, but isn't that gift so very precious, more precious than food? And for that matter, think about your body. Jesus says, what an amazing thing that is. You'll have to talk to the Hoffmans after worship, and they can tell you all about the mysteries of hummingbirds and the bodies. Clearly, Jude and Asher were really up on that stuff. (laughs) But just a few things I know about the body. One is DNA. Do you know this? That if you uncoiled the human being's DNA, it would stretch 10 billion miles from Earth to Pluto and back. Did you know the human skeleton is regenerative? My dad, who's been an orthopedic surgeon all his life, is working on using regenerative cartilage on somehow having the regenerative properties of bones be something that could ultimately cure arthritis. He's saying all he's working on is what the body's given us to begin with, what essentially God has given us. Bones regenerate completely, they say, every 10 years. The body is amazing, and it's, it's a gift all of us have. It's a gift the disciples listening to Jesus have. Look at the birds in the air, Jesus says. They don't stockpile grains in barns so that it spoils and rots or toil away terrified of the future. They enjoy the gift of food that God has given them from the good earth God has made, and human beings cannot improve upon, nor can they make, but they can certainly do it harm. And you, Jesus says, as people created in God's image, don't you realize how precious you are to God? Don't you think God will take care of you at least as much as God does the birds, providing for you from the goodness of the earth? Don't be so worried about the future. You miss the gift God has given you now, or miss recognizing and giving thanks to the giver right now, right here. Don't worry so much about your clothing. You miss what's underneath and the extraordinary gift that body represents. God's will in your life, be anxious for that. Be anxious to live as God would have you live, to know the fullness of the life God has in store for you, to be part of God's work in regeneration and renewal in the earth that so badly needs it. God has called you to live and will give you what you truly need. You will have enough. I won't promise you'll be rich, Jesus says, and I certainly don't promise you won't suffer. We remember that the Savior who invited His disciples not to worry nor to be anxious of the future knew that He Himself would be tortured and crucified and that hard paths awaited His disciples as well. 
but He also promises them fullness of life, God's presence in the journey, and He points them to the gift that is right before them there, the gift of their bodies, the gift of their life, and the gift of their Savior and teacher. Tomorrow will have its own worries, He says, let today's worries be enough for you. Don't miss the challenge and the gift of today. Now, some of you I know are really familiar with the King James Version. Do you, do you remember how this is translated, this last verse, that your pew Bibles render tomorrow or today's uh, um, challenges or today's trouble is enough for today? Today's trouble is enough for today. The King James Version renders it, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I love that. There's plenty of trouble for today. You don't need to add to that trouble, undue or unhelpful anxiety about the future. Let today's troubles be enough, okay? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, or today's trouble is enough for today. They're words to live by. As are Jesus' sayings before that, is not life, life so much more than food, is not the body so much more than clothing. Sure, make big plans to change the world, Jesus would tell His disciples. Together they would start a world-changing movement, and that required planning and hard work and forethought. Our call as Christians is not to disengage or pretend there aren't serious issues to contend with. No, our call is to find our part to play in God's kingdom. I've once heard it described like this. It's like God's reign is this wonderful tapestry, and we're each called to find our part in that, our particular contribution to the furthering of God's kingdom, the one peace we can have and are called to have in the grand tapestry of God's work of evangelism, of justice-making, of reconciliation, of pastoral care, of teaching, and of love, to find our spot and not try to take on the whole tapestry ourselves. Jesus calls us to play a part in the renewal of the, worth, but of the world, but not to worry so much about the future we get distracted from that call. Don't miss the gift God has given you today. Don't miss the good work God has given you today. Don't be distracted by soul-afflicting anxiety such that you miss the giver of all good gifts with you in the journey and savor what God has already given you that you might have strength for the journey and trust in God's provision ahead. So I'm going to try to get you really anxious right now. Take a look at this image of Alex Honnold climbing. Jim Rispin, bless his heart, went with me to go see this movie, Free Solo. If you haven't seen it yet, it is powerful and it will certainly fill you with anxiety. I look at that and I think, Lord, have mercy. He should be worried about the future. <laughs> he should be really worried about the future. The movie depicts Alex Honnold scaling the 3,000-foot El Capitan rock wall without any ropes or safety equipment. An amazing feat, and he did not accomplish it free of anxiety, though it might look that way. We are incredibly anxious watching him, and he seems so calm and collected throughout. What is up with that? 
we wonder as we watch the film, doesn't he know that his future could be this huge fall at any moment? And yes, he explains in the film, he does know that, and he is worried about that possible future, anxious about it even. He was so anxious about that future, a future where he might be 2,000 feet up on El Capitan without ropes or safety gear that he prepared meticulously for years. He trained rigorously with two-hour-long sessions every other day, hanging by his fingertips and doing one- and two-armed pull-ups. He spent hours rehearsing and perfecting and memorizing exact sequences of hand and foot movement so that every step, every hold was carefully choreographed. And then when it came to the actual climb, Honold accomplished it by immersing himself in the challenge and the gift of today. He would call June 3rd, 2017, the day he climbed El Capitan without ropes or safety equipment, the best day of his life. I know it wasn't the best day for his mother. (laughs) People asked him, "Uh, weren't you terrified being 2,500 feet up and having nothing but small indentations in the granite wall to hold on to, of hanging by nothing but his fingernails, or in certain sections where it is almost vertical, have nothing but his feet pushing against the granite wall to hold him up. Nothing else. Weren't you terrified? And how did you not just freeze up from anxiety? And he says, oh, well, that kind of anxiety wouldn't be helpful. That kind of fear would not help me. So, I learned to control that fear. I learned to address that fear. I learned to find out what of that fear is reasonable and how I might prepare appropriately for it. And he talks of his love of climbing, his love for the outdoors, especially on days like June 3rd where he can immerse himself in the gift and challenge of now. People call it being in the zone, living undistracted, focused on the challenge and gift of what is right before you. And it is a great feeling. And here's the good news. You don't have to risk your life going 2,500 feet up El Capitan to know that feeling. Think, in fact, if that kind of focus and energy could be brought to other challenges that can seem to us like unscalable 3,000-foot sheer rock walls, think if that kind of discipline and drive could be directed to tackling climate change, for example, or tackling homelessness in our city, or bringing about renewal in the church of Jesus Christ of passing on faith, the gift that faith is, the extraordinary resource it represents for life, for generations to come, that they might have something to hold on to and direct them and to be with them when times are tough. There's too much needed for the future not to immerse ourselves in the gift and challenge of the now. So, friends, If you are weighed down by anxiety for the future, anxiety that afflicts the soul, anxious for a future that affects your soul, if you are stymied by undue worry, offer up those concerns to God in prayer. Give those to God. Your concerns are likely well-founded. I'm not saying you don't have reason for anxiety and worry. But if they are distracting you, if they are leaving you stuck or stymied, not able to be engaged as you know God is calling you to be, let them go. Give them to God 
Know that God is with you and receive from God anew the gift of today. Receive the gift of breath in your lungs. Receive the gift of that precious body underneath those clothes that you wear. And remember the gift of Jesus Christ in His life given for you. Remember how His life now lives in yours by faith and know, know that you have enough, enough for today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.